Road. Um, there are two creeds that uh, we sometimes use in our worship here in which Christians all over the world and for hundreds and hundreds of years have used to express belief what our faith is. The uh, longer creed that we sometimes use is, is called the Nicene Creed. And uh, we also use a shorter one called the Apostles' Creed. And all over the world this morning, there will be Christians who will be saying the Apostles' Creed together. And I would like us to uh, begin this time by saying the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, there are two phrases in the creed which tend to confuse people. And whenever we use it, I always somebody come up, come up to me after the service and say, what does that mean? Uh, one phrase which confuses people is where it says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Because people come up to me and say, is this a Catholic church? And so, well, no, it's not a Roman Catholic church, but Catholic, the creed is translated, was written in Latin, it's translated from Latin. Catholic simply means universal, worldwide, all-inclusive. If someone has Catholic tastes, that means they've got broad tastes. What do you like to eat? Well, I'm Catholic in my tastes. I'll eat anything. That's what it means. So uh, we often actually, when we use the creed, we change that word Catholic to worldwide. I believe in the holy worldwide church, because that's what Catholic in this sense actually means. The second thing which people often get confused by is the phrase, I believe he descended into hell. And uh, people always ask about that. I think, what? what? And to be honest, often we just take that phrase out because it can seem so confusing and unclear. And what does it really mean? So often we just kind of take that out of the creed. But um, uh, in prepping for this message this morning, I've had a bit of a shift in my understanding my theology, which is quite fun when you're preparing for a message and you suddenly see things in a new way. I had a bit of an Alan Partridge aha moment of um, seeing things a little bit differently. We're doing this series on the cross. We're looking at eight different images, pictures, motifs of what the cross is and achieves. And the descent into hell is perhaps the most obscure and least well understood of all these different images of the cross we're looking at. But I think there's actually some stuff here which can really help us. And uh, I hope this morning that this does help us. And the first thing in order to help us is that we do need to adjust some of our language. So as I say, the creed was written in Latin, so for us, worldwide is a better word than Catholic. And actually, rather than the phrase, he descended into hell, a better translation for us, and a more accurate translation actually is, he descended to the dead. I believe he descended to the dead. And that's today's theme, that Jesus really did descend to the dead, that Jesus faced and defeated death, and that is good news. So that's where we're trying to go this morning. I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems like uh, Paul and Bournemouth and Dorset have become the center of the uh, movie industry. 
Um, a few weeks back, DC franchise was down at Sam Banks filming some Batman, perhaps, spin-off. And uh, this past week over at Winspit near Swanage, uh, they've been setting up filming for some Star Wars thing that's happening. So there's movie stuff happening all over the place in our region, which is terribly exciting. And throughout this series on the cross, we've been, as we've been speaking about it, we've been making many references to movies. And that's because actually the cross is the greatest story of all, and the cross contains the greatest themes of all, and the themes of the cross have been incorporated into the stories we tell the movies that we watch. Themes of ransom and redemption, of victory over evil, of sacrifice, of resurrection, all those kind of themes appear in movies, and that's why we've found it very easy to use movies as themes as illustrations throughout this series. And also, the descent to the dead is a kind of a movie-type theme. Here's something which... Theologian Matthew Emerson says about this, and hopefully at least one of these references will connect with stories that you know. Descents are everywhere, from Hercules and Orpheus venturing into Hades, to Harry Potter following the pipes down into the Chamber of Secrets, to the Sheriff and Joyce Byers frantically searching for Will in the Upside Down in the Netflix series Stranger Things. We want our heroes to descend into the underworld, defeat the enemy, and rescue their loved ones. We want Maui to enter the realm of monsters and defeat Tamatoa in the Disney film Moana. We love seeing Doctor Strange enter the dark dimension, experience death ad infinitum, and thereby trick and defeat Mordo at the end of the film named after him. Our hearts swell while reading The Silver Chair as Jill and Eustace rescue Prince Rillian from Underland and in The Lord of the Rings as Gandalf descends into the depths of Moriah, gives up his own life to defeat the Balrog, you shall not pass, and then rises to save Middle-earth. There is something fascinating about a shared yearning for, a hero who can enter the underworlds, defeat our enemies, and bring the dead back to life. Yes. This is what we lay hold of. This is what we are affirming when we say in the words of the creed, I believe he descended to the dead. There is a hero who has entered the underworld, defeated our enemies, and can bring the dead back to life. Now, to help us to see this from a biblical perspective, we're going to start with a parable, a story that Jesus told. It's in Luke chapter 16, reading from verse 19. There was... A rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. 
Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The stories, the parables that Jesus told, illustrate greater spiritual truths. And they tend to do that, that rather than coming head on to something, they kind of approach it from an angle, a bit of a slant. And Jesus tells a story which then illustrates a greater truth he's trying to convey. And the stories that Jesus told weren't fantasy stories. The stories that Jesus tells don't involve dragons and witches and wizards. They involve the stuff which was very familiar from normal life widows and taxes and tax collectors and coins and sheep and weddings and crops, the stuff that people would have been very familiar with and could relate to. So what about this parable that I've just read? Well, it reflects what would have been understood by the people who were listening to it about the place of the dead, the realm of the dead. When we um, think about life after death, We tend to be pretty binary, we think, in terms of heaven and hell. That wasn't quite how Jesus' hearers would have understood it. Uh, There's a rather different way they envisioned, envisaged, thought about, whatever the word is, the place of the dead. Here's a, a picture which helps to illustrate that. There's a place of the dead which is a place, but that place is divided into different places, into kind of different compartments. You've got the place of the righteous dead. That's the place of paradise, or as it says here, Abraham's bosom. That always makes nine-year-old boys laugh. So we go, Abraham, guys in their 40s or 30s, whatever you are. Uh, Abraham's side, as it says in the parable. The place of paradise. That's the place of the righteous dead. There's then a compartment which is the place of the unrighteous dead, and that's where the rich man is, Hades or Sheol or Gehenna, and then there's a really bad place, you don't want to go anywhere near Tartarus, which is the place of the fallen angels. And so these three kind of regions, these three compartments, they're all in the realm of the dead, but they're also separate, and there can be some communication between them, but you can't cross from one to the other. And so the rich man, who is called in church history, divas, not, not a diva, but divas, divas is simply Latin for rich man. Divas, the rich man, can see Lazarus with Abraham, but he can't cross over to where Lazarus is, and neither can Lazarus cross over to where he is. And that's kind of the aha moment. When Jesus told this parable, that's how it would have been understood by those who were listening to it. And the lessons that Jesus wants us to hear from this parable are, are pretty clear. First of all, there's a warning to the rich. Divas, the rich man, he's had life easy and Lazarus has had life hard. Lazarus has been sitting on the step outside Divas' house. Divas has paid no attention to him. Lazarus has been in such poor shape because of his poverty. And you can see this with really poor people, malnourished people. He's just had sores and the dogs came and licked his sores. That's how poor he was. That's how tough life was. And now The shoe is on the other foot. And you can imagine Jesus' first hearers, most of whom would have been poor, thinking, yes, stick it to the rich. Probably when we read this parable, because of where we are culturally, we're more concerned. Jesus says that 
the rich man's in Hades. That doesn't sound very nice. But the first hearers wouldn't have thought that. They thought, yes, the rich man's in Hades. Yeah, he had, he, he had it coming and he's got it. This is good news. So there's a warning to the rich. The second obvious application is there's a warning to the religious hierarchy. Because the sting in the tale is when the rich man, Diva, says to Father Abraham, sends Lazarus back from the dead, warn my brothers. And Abraham says, no, look, your brothers, they've got the Bible. They've got Moses, they've got the prophets. And if they're not going to listen to that, they won't pay attention even if someone comes back from the dead. And of course, what Jesus is doing there is pointing to the way that the religious authorities wouldn't acknowledge him even when he was raised from the dead. So there's that application there. But there's something more here, which is this story does give us an insight into what he descended to the dead means. And uh, let's look at some more scriptures which help illustrate this. Firstly, we can see that Jesus understood that he really would descend to the dead himself. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is talking about Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah, the prophet, called by God, runs away from God, gets on a ship, ship gets, in a, gets in a storm, sailors throw Jonah over the side, Jonah gets swallowed by a fish, Three days in the fish, three days later, spat out onto the beach. Get on with your job, Jonah. And in the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 2, Jonah says, I am deep in the realm of the dead. For Jonah, he descended into the abyss, into the ocean and into the belly of the fish, and it was as if he was dead. And Jesus says, for, for me, things are going to be like they were for Jonah. For three days, I will descend into the abyss. For three days and nights, Jesus was in the place of the dead, his body in the grave. He truly experienced death. But that's not all that was going on while Jesus was dead. And we can see this from what Jesus says to a criminal who was crucified alongside him. Again, you remember the story. Jesus was crucified and there were two other men crucified along with him. One on one side pours out curses upon Jesus the other one comes to a place of recognition and repentance and says to Jesus, Lord, remember me. And Jesus says to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What's paradise? Where's paradise? Well, we've already been told in the parable, paradise is Abraham's side. It's in the realm of the dead, but it's being at Abraham's Side. And so Jesus really did go to the place of the dead. He really did experience death as all humans did. His body really was in the ground and his soul was in paradise. And from that place, he could communicate with all the dead. In Philippians chapter 2, we get a beautiful hymn written expressing praise to Jesus, which talks about his humiliation. It's so humble, he went even to the cross, and then also talks about his exaltation, and it says in Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Those under the earth, who are they? They're the dead. Even the dead recognize who Jesus is. And then this became the message which the apostles preached. And so on the first day on which the Holy Spirit had been poured out, the day of Pentecost, the first time that one of those people had got up and declared what had happened, the Apostle Peter stands up and speaks to the crowd and he says, David said about him, about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. 
Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. What Peter's doing there is quoting from Psalm 16. David had written Psalm 16, and in that psalm, David is seeing, he's prophesying that the Savior, the Messiah who would come, would die, but wouldn't be abandoned to the place of the dead. Jesus did die, as all humans do, in body and soul. His body was buried, his soul went to the realm of the dead, but death could not hold him. And so Jesus himself, Revelation chapter 1, he speaks of this. Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Death and Hades are a place, the realm of the dead. But not just a place, they're also powers. It's rather like... um, the way that Jesus talks about the power of mammon, which we might translate simply as money. But there's stuff which is money, which is in itself neutral. It's just stuff, and you have more or less of it according to your life circumstances. But there's a power behind money, which is mammon. And mammon seeks to always control and manipulate money, which is why so often money becomes corrupt and is used for corrupt purposes and so often corrupts people because there's a spiritual power that operates through money, mammon. And death and Hades are not only a place, they're also powers, which hold power over the human race, the power of death. And now Jesus says that I was dead, but now I'm alive, and I've taken their keys. They don't get to control anymore who goes in and who goes out. I've got the keys to the house, not them. And so if we put all this together, we can see that Jesus really did experience death, as all humans do in body and soul. His body really was buried. His soul really did go to the place of the dead. And that descent to the dead was part of the way by which Jesus won the victory. Through his death, his descent, his resurrection, he was victorious over death and Hades and Satan and the whole lot of it. He descended to the dead. Jesus faced and defeated death. And that's good news. Now, what does it mean for us? There's a couple of things I just want to dig in to briefly, which we can apply. First one is that when we say he descended to the dead, that's a place for us to find comfort. And it's also a place for us to find some courage. So, first of all, let's think about how his descent to the death gives us comfort in the face of death and suffering. The question of suffering is one of the most difficult questions there is, and when people are exploring faith, it's often one of the questions people most often ask. If there is a good and a loving God, why is there so much suffering? Why did my friend suffer? Why did my mum get cancer? Why have I suffered? What's going on in the world? How could this happen? And sometimes there are natural events which make us ask that question. You might have asked that question over the past 18 months, the coronavirus, or Think back to 2004 and that unbelievable tsunami where more than 200,000 people drowned. Just think, what, how? And sometimes it's not natural events, is it? Sometimes it's people doing things. And you look at how, 
How could people be so wicked? How could people be so evil? How could people be so cruel? And sometimes humans do things which really cause everybody to confront the reality of evil and to even to use the word evil. And normally in our culture, we steer clear of the term evil, but then sometimes something happens. And all the papers and all the media use that word, this was evil, because there is no other way in which that thing can be described. And then there is the reality that all of us do have to face death. The death of people that we know and love and care about, and in the end... Our own deaths. Now that runs against another reality for us in our culture and our society of increasing life expectancy. I love this graph. I love a good graph. This is amazing. Uh, life expectancy in the UK from 1765 through to 2020. 1765, life expectancy at birth was only 39. And it bounced up and down around 40 for a long time some of those dips of things like smallpox epidemics and just takes years off people's life expectancy and then starts to go up with Victorian engineering. Hey, boys, let's build some sewers, let's get some clean water into people's houses and let's make sure people have enough to eat and suddenly people start living longer. There's a big dip early in the 20th century, First World War and Spanish flu, a really serious pandemic, just took whole bunch of years of people's life expectancy and then it kind of accelerates away and after the second world war with the nhs and antibiotics yes hallelujah antibiotics really starts to accelerate until we get to the point where we are now where it's beginning to flatten off a bit because maybe we're getting to just about as long as we possibly can live where a child born today can expect a life expectancy of 81 and reality it would probably be more if you were born in 1950, you've already beaten the odds because in 1950, life expectancy was 67 years. So you should have died four years ago, but you're still here, hallelujah. <laughs> Ahead of the curve. So anybody before 1950 who's still alive has beaten the curve. And in a sense, we can all expect to beat the curve because it's just going up the whole time. It's absolutely amazing. It's one of the miracles of modern life. Praise God we live now and not 1765, when we'd have been burying kids and women are dying in childbirth all the time. Just amazing. But the reality is, even despite that, you are going to die. I'm going to die. We all will. And there's the reality that suffering and evil are real. They are enemies that need to be overcome. And it's strange how often evil or even Satan himself is portrayed in our movies as somehow glamorous or sexy or adventurous. It's so often the bad guy gets the best part. But that's not what evil is like in reality. Evil in reality is not adventurous and glamorous and sexy. Evil in reality is gloomy and gray and dismal and boring as well as being horrendous. And it needs to be overcome. It needs to be defeated. And at the cross, Christ wrestled with evil in all its naked horror. On the cross, he bowed his head under the ultimate sentence so that we would not have to. John Calvin puts it in a very pithy way. He must grapple hand to hand with the armies of hell and the dread of everlasting death. What a vivid image. Hand to hand combat between Jesus and our enemies of hell and the dread of everlasting death. At the cross, all the sickening filth of our sin and all the suffering and pain of the world was emptied 
onto, into Christ, and he carried it all. In his descent, he experienced death itself. And this is an incredible comfort to us as we face the reality of death. When we face the loss of people that we love, or when we face the reality of our own mortality, we can find such comforts in the truth that Jesus descended to the dead. He's faced it. He's tasted it. He's experienced it. And he has overcome it. John Donne, the uh, poet, preached one Easter 400 years ago. And I wish I could preach like this. He said, The dead hear not thunder, nor feel they an earthquake. If the cannon batter the church walls in which they lie buried, it wakes not them, nor does it shake or affect them. But yet there is a voice which the dead shall hear. The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. It is a clamor, a vociferation, a shout. It carries a penetration and a power, a command. Since that voice at the creation said, let there be a world was never heard such a voice as this, Arise, ye dead. Awesome. Death is real. Jesus has tasted it. He descended to the dead, and he has overcome it. He's got the keys. And that, for us, is a great comfort. It means that death doesn't get the last word. There's so much about this sad old world of ours which is just utterly incomprehensible. But there's such comfort in Christ going ahead of us. He descended to the dead, but death could not keep him. He conquered and he holds the keys. We can be comforted by that. We can also find courage in this. We're baptizing a couple of people, Emily and Chloe, a little bit later, and I want to link this to baptism specifically because baptism points to the way in which we share in Christ's victory in which he descended to the dead and defeated death in Hades because really that's what happens in baptism. This is how uh, the letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 6, describes what happens in baptism. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Baptism is the sign that we are participating with Christ in the descent into death and into the ascent of resurrection. And it's also something which empowers us to live in a way which shares in the victory that Christ has won. It's a descending to death and a rising to life. That's what happens. In the water, die. Out of the water, live. And it's something which is objective and dateable. Sometimes 
we come to our coming to faith. Some people have very dramatic conversions. Many people, it's more a kind of a process, and it's hard to say this was the moment when I really believed. But there is something objective and dateable about your baptism. Emily and Chloe will be able to say for the rest of their lives, Sunday the 16th of May 2021, I was baptized. And that means something. It means that I am now empowered because I am sharing in the victory of Christ, that just as he died and was raised to new life, in him I have shed in that death and in that resurrection life. And that empowers us. It empowers us in our battle against sin. There's stuff throughout our lives which we wrestle with, and some wrestle with things more than others, and each of us have particular things probably we wrestle with which other people wouldn't in the same way. But if you are tempted to sin, think of your baptism. Because what does your baptism mean? It means that you shared with Christ in his death and you now share with him in his resurrection. He is victorious. He's got the keys. And that means that sin no longer has power over you because they don't hold the keys anymore. Jesus does. And so if you're struggling with temptation, remember your baptism and find courage. Or if you're feeling fearful, Remember your baptism, because baptism means sharing in the victory of Christ. What could be more frightening than death and Hades? But Christ has defeated them. He descended to the dead, and he overcame them. He's got the keys. So if you're feeling fearful, remember your baptism and find courage. If you're feeling troubled, well, what could be more troubling than death and Hades, but Christ has overcome them. He descended to the dead, and he's risen again, and he holds the keys. So if you're feeling troubled, remember your baptism and find fresh courage because he has won the victory, and you are a participant in that. Remember, he faced and defeated death. And of course, there's also an appeal here to those who haven't yet responded in faith to Christ or haven't yet been baptized. Because you need to be so you can find the comfort and the courage which is yours in Christ. Don't end up like that rich man, regretful, and saying to Father Abraham, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to talk to my family. And Abraham said, well, it's too late. The reality is we don't need any more testimony. We've got Moses and the prophets. And we have the testimony of the resurrected Christ. And so each of us must respond to him. We reject him. That's a fearful place to be. Receive Christ. Get baptized. And know your participation in his victory. He descended to the dead and he now reigns. He holds the keys. He is alive. So I'd like us to say the creed again and again to express our faith, our belief in this one who has conquered and is victorious. Why don't we stand together? Maybe the bank can come back as we read this. And let's read this together again. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the holy worldwide church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Yes, we do, Lord. We say we believe these things, put our trust in you. And uh, Lord, thank you. We can say, yes, he descended to the dead and he rose again. And we get to share in that victory and that life. Lord, I pray for us this morning where we need comfort or where we need courage. We'd remember what you have done. We'd remember what has happened to us. We'd think of our baptism if we've been baptized and uh, gain fresh faith. Thank you, Lord, in this troubled world, you have overcome. You are the victor. You descended and you rose. Hallelujah.